Chapter Twelve of Fairylands of the South Seas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Benditti. Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter Twelve. In the Cook Group. I was beginning this letter with a little fun at your expense. You would have been mystified, perhaps convinced, that my haunted friends at Ahu Ahu were just a bit uncanny. It is really a pity not to do it. I should have begun with a vivid glimpse of a seance, the quiet moonlight outside seen through an open door, the glimmer of a turned-down lamp in the house revealing the rapt, sightless face of the medium, the summoning of an old racamona from her sleeping place in the marais, the unnatural voice proclaiming the coming of the spirit. Then I would have told how a message from the visitor was announced for the strange white man, vouched for by the mother of a pakura. I see an island. The ghostly voice might have gone on. A little island, surrounding a great lagoon. It is Nakahina, in the far-off South Sea of Atolls. A schooner lies at anchor in the calm water off the settlement. She does not move, for the lagoon is very still. A boat is putting off for shore, and in the stern sits a dear friend of the white man, a slender man, who gazes eagerly towards the shore with dark eyes like the eyes of our people. A crowd is gathered on the beach. The girls carry gifts of necklaces and wreaths, and in the village the old women are preparing a feast. The man in the boat believes that this welcome is for the captain of the schooner, not knowing that this people was once a race of warriors and that they are gathered to give him welcome, the first soldier from the army of France to visit their island since the war. The keel of the boat grates on the sand. A score of men seize her to pull her up. The women crowd about the stranger. Aye, they are good to look upon these girls of Nukahina, to throw their necklaces over his head and crown him with the wreath of flowers and shell. His face grows red, the old man smile, the girls laugh aloud. One bolder than the rest runs at him suddenly, puts her arms about him, and kisses him after the fashion of the white man. His face grows redder still. At that, the old men too laugh loud. One after another, pushing and pulling to be first, the girls scramble to kiss him. He is overwhelmed, suffocated, and now his face is like fire. But he's not angry, for he smiles. Well, what do you think of ahu-ahu magic? I really ought to refrain from telling you the truth, which, like the stuff of most spirit messages, is simple, unexpected, and disillusioning. When we got to Avura, I found S there, over from Tahiti to buy cattle. Before his departure, the Alouette had turned up from the Palmotas, bringing word of your reception on Nakahinaya. I fancy you haven't had much time in your progress through the low archipelago for the pursuits of a landsman, so I'll give you an idea of how I've frittered away the days on Rorotonga. Soon after our arrival, there was a great stir over the coming of a shipload of parliamentary visitors from New Zealand, making a tour of the Cook Islands. A feast of welcome was to be given in Avura. Scores of pigs and hundreds of chickens were set aside for fattening, and the dancers of each village were to be seen rehearsing in the evenings. We drove to Avera on the appointed day and found the government boat already anchored in the roadstead of the town. 
An anchorage dreaded by skippers, for unless the anchor strikes exactly on the summit of a sharp submerged peak, it will slide clean off soundings. Long before we reached the settlement, the air had been vibrant with the sound of drums. The visitors were coming ashore. The dancing was in full swing. The performance, of course, was a perfectly sophisticated one, like Papati. Avura is a small ocean metropolis, the capital of a group, but it interested me to see the people. In spite of the efforts of the missionaries to make them ashamed of everything pertaining to heathen days, were not entirely without pride in the past. Each village was represented by a corps of dancers, men and women, equally divided, and had its own drums and drummers who furnished the sole music of the dance. The drums are of three varieties. The smallest are merely hollow sticks, six inches in diameter and a yard long, open on one side and producing a loud, resonant click when struck with a bit of wood. There are others of medium size, standing on short legs and beaten with the hand, but the huge old-time drum, suspended from the limbs of trees, interested me most of all. Imagine a five-foot section of the trunk of a big baratanga, carefully hollowed out and smoothed with the skins of wild goats stretched over the ends and sides decorated with outlandish painting. The big drums are stuck with the heel of the hand with such furious energy that the drummer streams perspiration and is soon exhausted. The deep, pulsing sound of them carries for miles in still air. Sometimes at night, when there was dancing in the villages, I have heard it as far and near, rising, falling, throbbing, from Aragoni, from Tecarvia, and from Nagatania whence the ancients set out on their thousand-league voyages to the south. I wish I could make you feel, as I have felt, the quality of this savage drumming, monotonous and rhythmic sound, reduced almost to its simplest form. It is the ancestor of all music, toward which perhaps our modern dance music is a reversion. There is syncopation in it when the big drum halts at irregular intervals, and the time is carried by the clicking of hollow wood. But it is solemn and ominous, anything but the merciless syncopation of ragtime. One feels in it an appeal to the primitive emotions, at once vague and charged with meaning. Fear and madness are there, with cruelty, lust, triumph, and a savage melancholy. Except in the case of the contingent from Manichae, an atoll far off to the north, there was a little variation in the dances, for which one can only say that they showed evidence of careful drilling. The women performed a variety of the dance common to all branches of the race, basically the same, rather called hula, hura, or ura. But their motions were awkward and stiff, without the abandoned and graceful movements of the arms to be seen in Hawaii or the Society Islands. The men who carried long staves like spears were freer in their motions, leaping, thrusting out their arms, and clattering their sticks in unison. The costumes, unfortunately for the eye of a sensitive spectator, were slipped on over the wearer's best European clothes, a concession to the missionary point of view. But the beauty of some of the kilts, tunics, and headdresses, and the trouble evidently taken in braiding them, showed that the Rorotarigans have not wholly forgotten the past. The dance was followed by speeches, and the speeches by a feast, all very conventional and uninteresting. 
I wonder if you are heartily fed up on baked pig. One needs a dash of island blood to appreciate it after the twentieth time. Any other sort of meat would be welcome here, where bully beef and pork are the staples. The need of a change of diet drives one to the lagoon. Fishing becomes a practical as well as a sporting proposition. During the proper phases of the moon, we lead a most irregular life, for the hours from three to five a.m. are often the ones most profitable to spend on the reef, and the evenings are occupied with a search for hermit crabs. You have probably made the acquaintance of the hermit crab, but in case you have been too busy to give him the notice he deserves, I'll venture to dwell for a bit on his eccentricities. It was not a pure love of natural history that turned my attention to him. I have been obliged to study him, at least superficially, by the fact that he is the dainty preferred by all the fish in this lagoon, and his capture, therefore, an indispensable preliminary to every fishing expedition. There must be several varieties of hermit crab. I have counted three already, the ordinary small brown one called Cacarara, the large red one found in deep water, and the black hairy kind, whose pounded-up body is mixed with grated coconut to extract the oil. This latter is called unga. In the old days, the lowest class of Rotongan society was known by the same name, meaning, I suppose, that all their property could be carried on their backs. The common variety is a good deal like the robber crab in habits. The natives go so far as to say that it is the same creature in different stages of existence. I doubt this theory, for while there are plenty of the little Karara in the volcanic islands, the robber crab is very rare. He lives on the atolls, and, to my mind, it is incredible that he should journey from island to island through leagues of deep sea. Like his formidable relative, the Karaka, spends most of his time ashore, frequenting the bush along the water's edge, where he lies hidden throughout the day, in a hole or under a pile of leaves. His first duty of the evening is a trip to salt water, for he seems to need a thorough wetting once in each twenty-four hours. After his bath, he heads back for the bush to begin his nightly search for food, nearly any kind of edible refuse, a dead fish on the beach, the fallen fruit of a pandurus, a coconut, opened by a rat or a flying fox, and containing a few shreds of meat. The size of the caracara can be judged from his shell, which may be as small as a thimble or as large as an orange. The creature inside is marvelously adapted to the life he leads. His soft and muscular body curls into the spiral of the shell and is securely anchored by a twist of the tail. The fore-end of the crab, which protrudes from the shell when he is in motion, reminds one of a tiny lobster, the same stalk eyes, the same legs, the same strong claws. When alarmed, he snaps back into his mobile fortress, and you perceive that legs and claws fold into a flat-armored barrier, sealing up perfectly the entrance of the shell. Sit still and watch him. Presently the claws unfold cautiously, and he emerges, little by little, feelers waving and eyes peering about in a ludicrously apprehensive manner. Finally, he gathers courage and starts off for the bush at his curious rolling gait. One might suppose the hermit crab the least social of living things, but in reality he is gregarious and seems to enjoy the company of his friends. They wander in little bands. Often one finds two or three small ones perched on the back of a larger comrade 
and enjoying an effortless trip across the beach to the lagoon. One afternoon I came upon three of them traveling in single file. The last member of the party, a frail little chap, crunched under the heel of my boot before I saw him. I stopped a moment in regret, and saw that the two other crabs were also stopping, warned by I know not what obscure sense that all was not well with the friend. They drew together as they halted, and went through a hasty and obviously anxious exchange of ideas, face to face, with feelers waving nervously. One was reminded irresistibly of a pair of fussy little old gentlemen halted in the street to decide which should do an unpleasant errand. At length, one of the two settled himself to wait, while the other faced about and shambled off briskly to the rear. A few seconds brought him to what was left of his unfortunate comrade. His eyes seemed to start from his head as he felt over the crushed wreck. A moment later, he turned and hastened back even faster than he had come. His arrival had an air of palpitating excitement. I fancied I felt transmitted to me a tiny thrill of horror at the news about to be communicated. This time the four antennae fairly vibrated. I imagined the conversation going on an inch above the ground. "'My God!' announced the bearer of ill tidings, breathlessly. "'Poor Bill is dead!' "'Bill dead?' exclaimed the other, shocked in spite of his incredulity. "'But no, you must be wrong. What could have killed him?' "'I don't know. He's dead all the same, crushed and mangled. It upset me fearfully.' "'Come, come, you've been seeing things.' He must have taken a shortcut to the beach. I tell you, he's dead. Come and have a look, if you don't believe me. So off they went together for a look at the corpse. And I left them, to mourn their friend, perhaps, to eat him. If you want to see a curious sight, get a hermit crab some day and pick up half a dozen empty shells of the size to fit him. Lay the shells on the sand in a circle a few inches across. Extract the crab without hurting him from his house and set him down naked among the empty shells. To get him out, by the way, is not so easy as it sounds, but you can do it by taking hold of his claws and maintaining a steady, gentle pull. In time, the muscles of his tail will tire and his grip relax. You will be amused when you see his first attempts to walk without his shell, which weighs three or four times as much as the tenant. It is precisely as a man might act, set down on some planet where gravity is weaker than on our earth, naked, helpless, and worried. Trace Trienicut. The crab makes a dash for one of the shells, gives it a hasty inspection with his feelers, finds something not quite right, and hobbles off to the next one. Perhaps this suits him. He faces about, in goes his tail, to make grip on the whorls. He snaps in and out, a few times as if trying the strategic possibilities of the new quarters. And next moment, you will see him ambling off blissfully toward the bush. The chase of the hermit crab is tame sport, no doubt, but not entirely without interest. One evening we set out just after dark, bucket and torch in hand. Not the old South Seas torch of coconut leaf, but the modern tube of galvanized iron, filled with kerosene and plugged with burlap, which acts as a wick. The high beach is best at this hour, for one's quarry is beginning to emerge from the bush for the evening dip, and those that have passed will leave spore in the soft coral sand. Here is the track of a small one, winding toward the water, in eccentric curves and zigzags. Follow it, and you will find him, motionless in the torchlight, hoping to escape notice. 
He goes into the pail with a cling. You can hear his feet scratching vainly at the smooth sides. There were not many about on this stretch of beach. They are uncertain in their habits and seem to be great wanderers. Here is the track of a monster, broad, corrugated like the trail of a miniature whippet tank. The spore leads to the lagoon, no sign of him at the water's edge. He has doubled back. Lift up the rotten coconut frond, and Unga, black, hairy, armed with a vicious pair of claws. You can hear him raging in the pail, a noise halfway between a whine and a growl, a crab with a voice. A stroll of an hour or two along the beach usually procures enough bait for a day's fishing, and one turns inland to follow the road home. Sometimes, when the new room has set behind the avura peaks and thick darkness settles over the bush, when the surf murmurs almost inaudibly in a stillness broken by the plunge of a fish in the lagoon or the grating screech of a flying fox quarreling with his mates in the palm tops, one is not sorry when the lights of the plantation begin to glimmer through the trees. We went to bed early that evening, for we had to be up long before daylight to catch the first of the flood-tide. But these island nights are not meant for sleep. I was soon up again, to spend a couple of hours alone on veranda. The feel of the air was like a caress, neither hot nor cold, and perfumed with a sense of strange flowers, waxen terry tahiti, sweet and heady frangipani, languorous queen of the night. In the mango tree behind the house a Mayan twittered, a drowsy overture to one of their abrupt nocturnal choruses. They are quaint birds, the Minas. Introduced to the islands many years ago, they have increased amazingly in this friendly environment, where they live in a state of half-domesticated familiarity with mankind. One sees them everywhere, hopping fearlessly about the streets of villages, fluttering to the table to finish the breadcrumbs left after a meal perched on the backs of cattle in the coconut groves. They are intensely gregarious, gathering in large flocks at sunset to roost in some thick foliage tree, orange mango or alligator pear. From time to time during the night with an abruptness and perfect unison that make one suspect the presence of a feathered leader of the orchestra, the two or three hundred members of the colony burst into a deafening song, a chorus which lasts perhaps twenty seconds and stops as suddenly as it began. At last I knocked the ashes out of my pipe and turned in. At intervals before sleep came I heard the far-off thud of a ripe coconut or the faint slither and crash of an old fond falling from a palm. We were awakened at three o'clock by the cook's announcement that coffee was ready. It is a pleasure to live where dressing is only a matter of slipping on a fresh singlet and hitching the peru tight around one's waist. Each man carried a pair of old shoes, for even the leathery feet of a native must be protected before he ventures on the live coral. Half a dozen plantation boys followed us to the beach along a path leading down an avenue of coconuts, the slender bowls illuminated by the glare of torchlight. In five minutes we were under the dark ironwoods at the water's edge, where the canoes were hauled up. Without waiting for us, the boys plunged into the lagoon, half swimming, half wading toward the reef, torches held aloft in their left hands. The tide was very low. We had only a short paddle to the shallow water on the inner side of the barrier. It was dead calm. Ideal weather for the spear, but 
There had been a storm somewhere to the south. Lines of tall, glassy combers, faintly visible in the starlight, were curling with the spitting reports of field artillery, crashing down on the reef until the coral beneath us seemed to tremble at each shock. The eastern sky had not yet begun to pale. The constellations glimmered with the soft glow of the tropics, the Southern Cross, Orion, and the Pelasgians. When the water was only knee-deep, we moored the canoe to a coral mushroom and went overboard in bare legs and tucked-up perus, wading slowly about twenty feet apart. The lagoon was so still and clear that it was not easy to tell where air ended and water began. Nothing moving in the circle of torchlight could escape notice. It was necessary to watch the bottom and walk warily. The reef is a honeycomb of holes and passages through which the sea boils in at certain tides. Many of these holes, only a few feet in diameter at the surface, lead deep down and out into the caverns lining the edges of the pass. The haunts of octopus and the man-eating rock cod called Tonu. A faint ripple revealed a big blue parrotfish sulking in the shadow of a boulder. One of the native boys slipped his spear close before he thrust with a skill that needs years to acquire. He killed the fish with a stab just where the head joins the body and strung it on a strip of hibiscus bark at his waist. These lagoons swarm with strange forms of life unknown in northern waters. Until one learns one way about, there is a certain amount of danger in wading through the shallows along a reef. A sea scorpion passed close by us, a wicked-looking thing, all feelers and enormous fins. A touch of those spines would give you a nasty leg. And even more poisonous fish is found here, though fortunately not often, the new, which lies buried in patches of coral sand. I have never seen one, and do not know its name in English, but the spines of its dorsal fin are said to be hollow like the fangs of a rattlesnake and to inject a poison, when stepped on, that is apt to kill or cripple for life. The Totora, or sea porcupine, is another odd creature, but not at all to be feared. At the approach of danger he blows himself up like a football, and once inflated is proof against almost anything. I have seen a man hurl a heavy stone on one a dozen times without being able to burst him open. In a different way, the conger eels are nearly as hard to kill particularly the big ones, which are no joke to handle when one is wading bare-legged. One must be on the alert every moment, torch blazing, spear poised. One moment you jump on a mushroom of coral to avoid a pair of sea-snakes, long, slender, and spotted, active, fearless creatures, whose bite is said to be a serious matter. A moment later you are slipping and scrambling at top speed to cut off some large fish, working his way through the shallows. One of the boys banged a patuki, a young tonu. I was glad to have a look at that ugly little brute. He was only a foot long, a marvel of protective coloring, irregularly spotted and blotched, so as to be nearly invisible against a background of coral. The size of the mouth, the power of the jaws, and the rows of cruel little teeth convinced me that the full-grown fish must deserve the bad name given him by the pearl-divers. The light was gray in the cloudbanks along the eastern horizon, flushing pale rose, when the boys extinguished their torches and set out across the lagoon, each one trailing a heavy string of fish. My host had had enough sport for once, but I loved to be on the water at dawn, 
So when I had landed him, I paddled out to the pass to fish for Titoria. The current was slack, and not a breath of wind stirred in the lagoon. The light grew stronger, the contours of the island developed in sharp serrations against the sky. Presently the sun rose. I anchored the canoe in a fathom of water at the edge of the pass, allowing her to swing out over the depths. Through my water-glass I could examine the precipitous walls of the channel fifty feet high, overhanging in places seemed pitted broken by the dark mouths of caverns. Shoals of fish moved leisurely along the face of the coral, appearing and disappearing like nesting swallows seen from a cliff-top. Swinish parrotfish, bright blue and long as a man's arm. Tapatupu, spangled orange and black, stopping to nibble at the coral. Slender pipefish, swift and uneven, fish of extraordinary form and coloring, indescribable, perhaps undescribed. At last I saw what I was after, a school of Titera, working in from the sea. I wonder if you know this fish. It is new to me, though I have been told that it exists in the northern Pacific. It is of the true game type, swift and rapacious, with a conformation of a mackerel, and related, I should say, to the pompano of American waters. The younger ones, eight to ten inches long, and approaching at certain times of year, in great schools, are called Aturi, when medium-sized, running from two pounds up to twelve, it is known as Titera, in the Cook Islands, Paparo in Titian, and on the east. The fully-grown fish, which attains a weight of a hundred pounds or more, is called Runa. These different names for stages in the life of the same fish are interesting to me, for they illustrate the richness in certain directions of a language so poor in others. We have such terms in English, but they are rapidly becoming obsolete. I doubt, for example, if the average man at home knows that a young salmon is called a grills, and the younger one a par. One's outfit for this kind of fishing consists of a pail of hermit crabs, a couple of stones for crushing them, a hundred feet of stout cotton line, a single hook on a length of piano wire, and several dozen pebbles to be used as sinkers. First of all, you smash the shells of a few crabs, tear off the soft bodies for bait, and crush the claws and legs to a paste. This chum is thrown overboard little by little to attract the fish and keep them about the canoe. When a glance through the water-glass shows that the fish you want have gathered beneath you, a pebble is attached to the line by means of a special hitch, which can be undone by a jerk. Now you lower the line over the side until the bait is in the required position. A sharp pull frees the sinker, and you are ready for the first client. The theory of the detachable sinker is that it enables one to fish at a distance from the boat without having the hook rest on the bottom, where it is apt to foul on the coral. On this occasion my sport was ruined by one of those tantalizing incidents which lend charm to every variety of angling. I had caught two fish and was lowering my line to try for a third, when the small fry gobbling my chum suddenly scattered and disappeared. Next moment a monstrous titera, almost the urnaclass, loomed up from the depths, seized my bait, and made off so fast that the line fairly scorched my fingers. My tackle was not designed for such game as this. There was nothing to do but try to play him. But when only a yard of line remained in my hands, I was forced to check the rush. A powerful wrench, the line slackened dead. He was off. 
The light hook had snapped at the bend, and I had no other. The old, old story. It is never the fingerlings that get away. Cut into fillets and soaked for six hours in lime juice, my two fish made a raw order of the most delicate kind. I took a plate of it to the house of a neighbor who had asked me to dinner, and this old-timer of the South Seas pronounced it of the very first order. You would enjoy knowing him. He has been in this part of the world since the seventies. Supercargo, skipper, trader on islands seldom visited, even today. Now he is retired and lives on a small plantation which represents the savings of a lifetime. After dinner, as we sat on his wide veranda with pipes going and glasses on the table between us, he told me a tale so curious that I cannot resist repeating it to you. The story of an island far away to the north and west. An island I shall call Arirai. Atolls are by nature lonely places, but of all atolls in the Pacific, Arirai is perhaps the loneliest, never visited, far off from any group out of the paths of navigation. Not very many years ago, Ariri was a bit of no-man's land. Though marked on the chart, its existence was ignored by the powers. It had never been inhabited, no flag had ever been raised above its beaches of dazzling coral sand. At the time, as for centuries before, the seabirds nestled undisturbed on the islets within the reef, where all day long the water flashed blue in the sunlight and the trade wind hummed a song of loneliness among the palm-tops. Then a day came when two Frenchmen, rude traders and planters of coconuts in the Tumatu, spoke of Ariri. Here was an island capable of a hundred tons of copra, and claimed by no man. They would plant it and reap the rewards of enterprise. The chief difficulty was to find a superintendent to take charge of the project. It needed a white man, but white men willing to undertake a task of such poignant loneliness were not to be found every day in Papeete. As it chanced, their man was at hand. The natives call him Tino. Perhaps his name had once been King. Years among the islands had obliterated whatever stamp of nationality he might have possessed. It was rumored that he was English by birth, and also that he had a commission in the Confederate Navy. Tall, strong, of fine presence, with a full blond beard and eyes of reckless blue, a great singer and dancer, always the merriest in a feast, and the idol of the women, remarkable linguist and storyteller, drunken, brave, witty, and unprincipled. Tino was of a type which thrives in Polynesia. When they offered him the position of superintendent at Ariri, the two Frenchmen were not without misgivings. He was on the beach at the time, though the only sign of that condition was an unusual laxity in returning the favor when a friend invited him to drink. Tino had no money, but that was his sole limitation. Each of a dozen native families vied for the honor of transferring his mat and camphorwood box to their house. When evening came, he had his choice of a dozen invitations to dine and a dozen girls competed for the joy of doing his laundry and making hats for him. But this easy-going philosophy and lack of worry over a situation scarcely respectable in the eyes of Papeete's businessmen were calculated to sow distrust. In the case of Ariri, however, it was difficult to see how he could go astray. There would be no liquor. They would see to that. 
and with no visitors and no means of leaving the island there seemed to be little chance of trouble tino was a famous handler of native labor the agreement was made and in due time a schooner sailed into the Reefs lagoon to land tino and a score of raritarian boys with their wives the frenchman took care to leave no boat capable of putting out to sea but as there were houses and sheds to build they left a considerable variety of tools and gear in addition to a year's supply of medicine food and clothing a day or two later the schooner sailed away the superintendent called his men together and appointed a foreman the main island was to be cleared rows staked out and the nuts brought for seed to be planted in such a manner before this work began a house was to be built for each family that was all except that tino needed five men at once for a special work of his own let them be those most skilled at woodworking with that he seems to have dismissed the business of planting coconuts from his mind there was a certain amount of hibiscus on the island as well as the trees called tou and puka in seven months time with the help of his men tino cut down trees sought out timbers and planking and built a forty-foot cutter sturdy fast and seaworthy her mast was the smooth down trunk of an old coconut palm her sails a patchwork of varied fabrics her cordage of sinnet twisted and braided coconut fiber the work of women incredibly skillful and patient for anchor she carried a grooved coral boulder and her water tanks were five-gallon kerosene tins at the end of the seventh month this improbable vessel was launched rigged and provisioned tino bade his men farewell and set sail promising to return to the westward fearless and alone his only instrument was a compass and yet he made the passage to fiji twelve hundred miles in fifteen days i forgot to say that before his departure he had ordered the top of a tall palm chopped off and on his stout flagpole had hoisted a homemade edition of the union jack in fiji he wasted no time at the office of the high commissioner of the pacific he announced that he had taken possession of Ariri in the name of the british empire and petitioned that a fifty years lease of the island at nominal rate be given to him the request was granted a few days later tino was again at sea still alone and headed for his little kingdom the story is that he bought a sextant in fiji but at any rate something went wrong and he was fifty days without a landfall think of this extraordinary man drifting about alone in his absurd boat careless self-confident and unworried even captain slocum said to have navigated thousands of miles of ocean with no other chronometer than a connecticut alarm clock performed no matter feat tino fetched up at a big lagoon island six or seven hundred miles out of his course it is enough to say of his stop that he spent a week and left loaded down with provisions and drinking nuts and accompanied by five of the younger and prettier girls of the village this time all went smoothly a plural honeymoon party enjoyed a merry voyage to Ariri, where Tino established his large and amicable family, and proceeded to the less diverting business of planting coconuts. A year passed. A day came when the schooner from Tahiti rounded to in the lagoon and sent a boat ashore. Accompanied by his twenty men, Tino met the supercargo on the beach. Copra from the old trees? There was not much but what there was belonged to him this was a british island and he was the lessee here were the papers to prove it 
He regretted that, as the proprietor, he could not allow strangers ashore. Demoralize the labor, you know. The Frenchman fumed, but they were too shrewd not to recognize defeat. The years passed in peaceful and idyllic fashion. A score of Tino's half-savage offspring fished and swam and raced along the beach. Then one day Tino fell ill. While they lay in bed, despondent and brooding over their, the unfamiliar experience, a schooner entered the lagoon and dropped anchor opposite the settlement. Her boat, trim and smartly manned as a yacht's gig, brought ashore the first missionary to set foot in Ariri. Tino was difficult in the beginning, but the moment was perhaps the weakest of his life. When the missionary left, he had married the sick man to Mini, his favorite wife, and received permission to install a native teacher for the children of the island. It amuses me to think of Tino's recovery and probable regret over his weaknesses. The thing is so natural, so human. Body illness and a spiritual reform have always gone hand in hand. But his word had been given in good faith. He finished the church and schoolhouse he had promised, and in due time installed a teacher among his flock. The supreme irony of the fair comes at this point. For the native teacher, on the lookout for a flirtation, was indiscreet enough to select Meninini as the object of his attention, and ended by being caught with her under circumstances of the most delicate and compromising nature, as Tino said afterward. He had a score of women to choose from, besides four of mine who wouldn't have mattered. And then he picked on Meenie-Meenie. Why, damn it all, man, I was a bit fond of that old girl. The teacher paid dearly for his indiscretion. Tino lashed him to a post in the sun, where he probably would have died if the missionary schooner had not appeared just at that time. Cowed and whimpering, the culprit was thrown into a canoe by the indignant husband, who pushed off and paddled angrily alongside the schooner. "'Here's your bleeding missionary!' he roared out, as he hurled the struggling native into the lagoon. "'I'm through with him. From now on this island will have to get along with me for teacher and missionary and king.' That is all the story, except that Tino died not long ago, happy, rich enough, and surrounded by a numerous tribe of grandchildren. End of chapter 12